Hello, and welcome to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay! A podcast about the intersection between mass media culture and mental health. I'm Kaylee Legrand. I'm Tanya Bevan. Musical guest <laughs> is over. I <laughs> am I'm super excited to introduce the interviewee that we had for this episode. Just... Just everything that like our podcast is about and that I'm personally interested in. It was really interesting chatting with him. I am so sad I missed this chat. It I was, am. Oh, I'm sad it's for you. So amazing. Like this is like a. It's like it's gonna make you feel so fucking good. It, it, it's it's so, like taking three yeah. yoga classes in a row, and you're like, I can conquer the world. Whoa! Look at that projection. I should oh, have turned down the sorry. game. Sorry. No, it's, you know, my bad. There we go. I turned <laughs> down the game. Uh, I'm gonna turn down a little bit more even. <laughs> We're actually projecting today. It's amazing. I'm moving back for the mic. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a really fascinating conversation, and we're definitely going to have have him back. Mm-hmm. So, for, first of all, let's just mention his name. His name is Albert Nirenberg, and he is a documentary filmmaker. He's a laughologist. There's there's so much more. We'll, we'll we just touched the tip of the iceberg as well to actually getting into what he does and what he studies. Mm-hmm. So it's so fascinating. So but cool. but also like I also want to point out to our listeners that, you know, how it, it was such a crazy day and I'm so sad that you missed this interview. But poor you you were sitting at the vets like all night. I I had not heard from you all day and it did sounded like you just went through nightmare trying to figure out what was wrong with the pup and and like just a hectic night for you. But I'm so sad that you missed this interview. The dog ate a tampon. Don't worry. It was clean. But oh, she ate a tampon. Good. That, that Anyways, is less gross. But thank you. No, it sounded so fun, and I really hope we can interview him again, especially when his other projects come out, because yeah. they sound so cool. Yeah, absolutely. Super wonderful to just chat with. Um, I talked with Albert over the phone. He's in Montreal. He's a Montreal-based uh, documentary filmmaker. I just missed him when he was uh, down in Toronto last. But what's funny enough is that I actually... With his publicist reached out to us to connect us and have him on the show. Um, I didn't realize at first who he was until she sent me some of his material. And I'm looking through um, some private cuts of like talks that he's given, sermons and lectures, and and uh, a, kind of like the Canadian equivalent of TED Talk. There's the Idea City that I went to, and he was a speaker at Idea City. Wow! And in the video footage that his publicist sent to me, I like can see myself up in a balcony listening to him at one of his talks. Really, just a small world. That I was just about to say that, yeah. yeah. Small world. It, it's super interesting. And I remember having a lot of fun in the audience when he was speaking. He he worked with like power poses with the audience and taught them what it meant to, like, that the psychosomatic connections or the physicality that you can embody and how that uh, changes the way that you feel about yourself mm-hmm. and it changes the way that you conduct yourself in this world. Um, he's, he's so interesting even in the phone call I could tell there's so much more that we want to talk about oh for my instance goodness. it would have been great to get into um we started sort of touching on the idea of power dynamics um and what they are regarding uh, sex and sexual proclivity except especially in terms of what it means to be a woman in this industry I would have loved to explore that a little bit more mm-hmm. um and and but like he said you know 
if, if he would have kind of trailed into that field, that could be its own entire documentary and it could be in another, uh, in our case, an entire episode. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll dig mm-hmm. into that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But he also talked about, uh, real life heroes, like how, yeah, like, uh, what was it? Jamie Foxx, Tom Ford, Gosling, like these, these real actors doing real life. Tom Ford, Tom Ford, the, the designer, Tom Ford. I'm sorry, not Tom Ford. <laughs> Oh, Tom Cruise. <laughs> Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to Harrison I'm trying to Ford. Tom Harrison Ford. Ford. Sorry, not. Yeah, just like in a, a leather pirate Tom outfit Ford's and like his and sunglasses. Bet. Yeah. And snap. I'm going to get you, girl. I don't even know if he's I can gay. Stop the... I just assumed. I'm I sorry. I, I don't think he is. I don't think he's gay. Sorry, Tom Ford. Uh, um, <laughs> we just assume fashion industry people are gay. But yeah, there's like, he's, he's, I've never, I didn't even know these, these, actors were like real life heroes yeah and and it's it it goes to show that imagination can come to life i don't know if that yeah 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 you know and 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 then it goes into why are these people running into burning cars and things and then he goes into talking about body memory which is almost it's 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 like a reaction for them to do this because they somewhat already know how to do it because they've been doing it so much on screen that it's like okay i need to go save the world yeah yeah like you wonder you know in some cases is is it just that we're seeing more of this because they're famous people and they're in their paper more and so we're making these bias confirmations that for sure then like it's just uh it, like maybe everybody does this maybe every normal well, yeah. person would do this but but they also make the news if they save somebody from a, a bus accident or whatever and he mentions publicists and all that stuff so of he course does but he also talks that. about it in terms of you know how, how why if it is a phenomenon and they are just at acting or embodying these heroic experiences that no other other normal person would would typically do you know all the bystander they were talking about the Mm -hmm. bystander effect they all of all of him all of alberts um but but talking about how you know how does this happen mentally physically how how does or, or like the transfiguration of somebody actually becoming a real life hero because they've experienced it so many times as an actor or in a film or on mm-hmm. in a play um, the embodiment the actual going through the experience of it you know in a way it sounds like this is it's a, it's a learned disposition to be heroic can be a learned disposition maybe there's certain there's an argument like in nature versus n- nurture uh sort of ways that you have to be predisposed to be able to become brave uh i'm not sure i think that's again a deeper conversation mm-hmm. but i think that's also the idea that we play with as actors that you know if you experience something if you can um i don't know if you've already experienced it, then you can play it in a movie. And if you've played it, in, or, or vice versa, if you've played it in a movie um, and faked it until you then have to like make it and experience that in real life. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's actually a little bit easier for me to get into these shoes of a hero or what, whatever it is, um, because I've already gone through that. So yeah. like the visualization, whether or not it was somebody else who told you to do it, like a screenwriter is just giving you the words, or if it's something that you want to script into your own life, you want to write, yeah. you want to create your own future. Which is also your own another future. thing he talked about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, and, and that is what's super fascinating, I think, as actors, we get really excited about this, this idea of the power of imagination. Yeah. Because it's not just the power of our own minds 
or mindfulness to put us in a space to, to, to create a story, to literally make other people also believe in what we are doing on a, on a, just an experiential, like in Mm -hmm. a, in a practice sort Mm -hmm. of way. Um, but then to also harness that power or, or knowledge and, and be able to tell stories that affect change. Um, not that though we got into this industry to like change the world. We got in for the money for sure, obviously. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm making millions. Right? We really are. Um, <laughs> that's the life of an artist and it's beautiful. I love it. But but I love this idea that, you know, maybe you you are your own habits and your character is made up of what you habitually do. Not to get too fucking existential, but um, <laughs> I just, I found it so fascinating and, and talking to Albert, like they're just... There just wasn't enough time to get into, um, and we've already done this. I mean, like, we how much how how much airwave time did we waste talking about poop and um, and lots of fart jokes uh, and lots of dick jokes and, and sometimes <laughs> you just need some yeah. flaccid humor. It's not for four hours. Yeah, with Christian Broom, we spent I think four hours in total, so we had to break it up into two episodes. Uh, and I wasn't gonna keep Albert on the phone for four hours. Yeah, so on he's the not the side a- of the road. <laughs> on the side of the road out in Montreal. You know, it's first time I'm ever talking to him. I know that we can like rope Christian into sitting with us for four hours talking about nothing because we also roped him and we had a nice night of wine drinking. But yeah, so Albert was on the side of the road as I was talking to him uh, via via phone call from Toronto. Um, <laughs> So if you do, you are going to want, not if, you are going to want to learn more from what Albert is creating, his works, and you're going to be able to, his documentary, which is called You Are What You Act, is going to be making it onto the documentary channel January 7th. So. I'm so excited to watch I'm it. I'm so excited too. I'm like, oh, I, I love it. I love what he is studying. It's it's all of it's the types of conversations that you and I were having in bars after workshops that instigated this podcast. Yep. True, I love true, it. True. <laughs> I've got butterflies in my stomach, and my mind is just ready to explode. I'm having so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. I I also don't get out a lot. Chugging my coffee. Gonna push play. Here is our interview with Albert. Enjoy. I want to introduce you to our, our audience members. So why, why don't you start off by talking about how you got to where you are, or how you got in this industry? Well, um, it's actually a weird story. I, I was, a for many years, a newspaper reporter. Uh, huh. um, in a sense, I was, you know, kind of a straight... I, w- I wasn't going to say a news guy. I always had a, um, you know, a weird sense of humor, I would say. But... but um, the, it really starts uh, during the Oka crisis. I was like a, a punk reporter uh, mm-hmm. who couldn't get any respect from my editors. And um, But the weird part was that I used to do improv, which is a whole other story. But because of that, I used to carry a, a, a video camera that we only use to record our improv shows because when you do improv, you can't remember what you did, you know, by definition. Oh, yeah. I know that very well. Exactly. So, so – the Oka crisis happens, which is like a you know a military standoff about uh, 45 minutes uh, northeast of Montreal, and um, and what's crazy about it is that the army's called in, the police are called in. It's a confrontation between them and the Mohawk community and, and armed Mohawk warriors. It's a it's an armed standoff um, okay. you know, in the suburbs of Montreal, in effect. Yeah, between First Nations and the Canadian government. That's right, and okay. literally the Canadian Army, in fact. And 
when I was there, uh, I was like reporting in the middle, and what happened is at a key moment in the whole thing, under pressure from the government, the all the TV crews pulled out. And um, the, this was significant because the Mohawks particularly felt that actually TV was keeping people safe because as long as there were cameras, the mm-hmm. you know the military or the police wouldn't open fire on them. Right. Be witness. So so when they when they pulled out, there was a lot of nervousness and anxiety. I, I don't mean to, this is a bit of a long story, but it, it, it ends very soon. Mm-hmm. So. So myself and a, and a photographer, we thought, oh, we got to see if we can get a camera in with the Mohawk Warriors because there's nobody in there reporting on it. And we basically crawled on our hands and knees through um, the Army lines, which was a forest next to the river. It mm-hmm. took us a long time. It was about a, a, a kilometer and a half of, of, of forest. And then we actually climbed under the razor wire uh, and got in and... Uh, the nobody believed we got in. The army, in fact, denied it for two days. It's in a, a known documentary where they, it's very funny. We see the army denying it. It's not possible that anybody got in. And then they would cut to us inside, like there, and we were like, "Yeah, we're we're here." And uh, anyways, because of that, I was hired by networks all over the world, ABC, uh, TV in Canada, and I became a filmmaker. I, I hadn't decided to. Um, but I was suddenly hired by TV networks and I had to film. And so I learned in this crazy kind of militarized situation how to, how to film. Um, right. And that's basically how my career started. And, and so the films that you were being hired to do, were, they, were you doing news segments or were you doing documentaries that were full length, uh, like feature length? Or uh, what, what sorts of projects were you being hired to do? It was, well, basically I was trapped behind the lines with the Mohawks. There was about 80 Mohawks behind the lines, and uh, I, I initially it was just news coverage, so what was going on, which was usually quite crazy. Right. And then when, when, when I got out, we made a documentary called O Canada about the experience behind the lines. So it was both, to answer your wow. question. Wow. Wow. That, that, that is a backwards way into it, very unexpected. So you didn't have yeah. any um, aspirations to become a filmmaker before that happened? No, in fact... <laughs> In fact, I saw filmmakers because I knew filmmakers, you know, from kind of like downtown Montreal. I saw them as kind of pretentious artistes, <laughs> and um, and I, I was like, the last thing I wanted to be was a filmmaker. But mm-hmm. when I saw the power of the camera and what you know, I was on the news every night in Canada and sometimes in the states. I mm-hmm. saw like how much what it did and how emotional it was. It, it something changed and it wasn't I don't want to make it sound like I was not interested in film it's just that I didn't see my place in it I, mm-hmm. I, I will explain later that I did I had an interest in theater practically my whole life but right. but um, this was a different thing yeah so your interest in theater beforehand was it more of a you enjoyed performance and then once you started recording other people's stories you became more interested in in more of a general uh storytelling sense it's it's another weird story but i'll try to tell as fast as i can so when okay. i was 16 mm-hmm. i got out of school and i decided to take a year off and and i uh, I, I hitchhiked to calgary alberta and i ended up working at the exact wrong end of the oil industry which is i got a job as a as a gas station attendant okay which i enjoyed actually but 
mm-hmm. but I, I had a kind of miserable existence. I was shy. I didn't know anyone. And I happened to see this poster one day for this weird theater company called Loose Moose Theater. Yeah. <laughs> so you probably know the story. So, so, and then like I signed up for a workshop and, and I ended up in this kind of sad, at the time, sad workshop, even though it was brilliantly animated by this fellow named Keith Johnstone, who is a legend. Mm-hmm. Not only a legend, it's probably, you know, largely the inventor of modern improv. But <laughs> I just thought he was some guy who ran the workshop. And other, sometimes people wouldn't show up. Like, I would do the workshop, like no one would show up except for me. Oh, wow. So Keith Johnstone and I would go, he would like take me to like coffee or we went to a movie once and because there was nothing else to do. But wow, I started to realize like this guy's, like it, it changed my life. I went from being an introvert to an extrovert and, um, and I learned how to do improv, but then I forgot it all. I for, I went back to university, went into journalism and forgot that I knew improv, but you'll see how it comes back to haunt me later. <laughs> oh, well, I like that you set up the the yeah. uh, for later punching. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's really cool that you like it. Um, it makes sense to me. I mean, being an improviser as well uh, in in Toronto for the most part, but uh, you hear those stories, especially when people talk about how they started in improv. The moments of realizing how how rooms can be pretty empty sometimes you know even even shows that you're producing not not just workshop but like shows that you're putting on or stand-ups in like when you're getting up to the mic for for open mics and and how a, a lot of people how they start off even even if they've made it uh to like b or a list celebrities like a lot of people started off in very small rooms with very little audience members you know just their own friends or people that they have to pay to bring in <laughs> so it's interesting that everybody kind of starts off in those same sort of spheres yeah well i I have actually a theory which i I should probably again tell you later about why that is i I think that i'm gonna say that people you know there's a term i jokingly use which is called dramatophobia which is the irrational fear of drama um Ah. which actually is not a real word i just i invented it because there there should be a a Mm -hmm. term for it but but there isn't but but i think we as a culture, unfortunately, I mean, like, I have become, since making this film, You Are What You Act, a mm-hmm. huge, like, uh, it sounds like a strange thing, but like an advocate for theater. Um, mm-hmm. and not just as a, like, nice thing to do on a Saturday night, but as a, a tool for social transformation. And, right. um, but, but I, I should probably explain it a little better than that, but, but, um, yeah. yes. Sorry, go ahead. I well, let, let's talk about your your film. You are what you act. It's actually sorry. It's, it's actually now playing in in, um, uh, in different cities. But yeah, it's it's, it's out. It's out. Um, Perfect. Right. And oh, okay. So this is this is what we can plug. This is what you're promoting. And if I understand correctly, then it is it's coming out on the documentary channel. Yeah, it's going to be. Uh, I don't know what your dates are, but it's uh, January seventh. Documentary channel. Um, that it starts, and I think they run it a bunch of times, but I don't know those exact times. But yeah, documentary channel soon. Amazing. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what what this is. This is a documentary. Yes. I'm assuming <laughs> it's on it's on the documentary channel, so it, you know, yeah, great fit. You chose well. And yeah. I think that's a great outlet for you. <laughs> it's not on the on the tennis channel. 
It's okay. Well, then I think that you're winning so far. Yeah. Okay. okay. It's a crazy documentary, and let me t tell you about, like, where the idea came from. So, mm -hmm. really simply, um, one day I was reading the paper, and I saw that, read this article about Tom Cruise, the actor, uh, mm -hmm. rescuing a woman who was being mugged. And I remember thinking, that's weird. That sounds like, like a scene from a Tom Cruise movie. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, oh, I thought I remembered, like, another story, like, along the same lines. So I got out the Google... And I was like, wait a second. He hasn't done this just once. He's actually done it five times. Like, Oh, my God. He, he, he rescued a family on a burning boat. He rescued somebody who's being crushed by paparazzi. He rescued a woman in a stunt gone wrong. Um, How does that happen so many times? Is it like, I feel like that's got to be a publicity stunt or something. That's a real thing? Yes. And it's okay. And here's where it gets weirder. weirder. It's not just him. Harrison Ford has rescued hikers on, on two different occasions. He just, just actually last year, he pulled a woman out of an overturned car uh, on, on the expressway. Jamie Foxx pulled somebody out of a burning truck. Um, Kate Winslet carried Richard Branson's mother. Richard Bran Kate Winslet was staying with Richard Branson at his house, uh, in a mansion on an island in the Caribbean. A hurricane hit the island lightning hit the house lit it on fire and uh, Kate Winslet was trying to get down the stairs and Richard Branson's mother was a, ahead of her and was like is it like kind of 80 years old yeah the story is a different version of the story but I think Kate Winslet literally lifted up or carried or helped um, Richard Branson's mother out of the house and then the house literally collapsed and burned behind them um, <laughs> that sounds exactly like the scene of an action film of, of, yes, uh, um, uh, Tom Hardy uh, saw somebody steal a motorcycle, vaulted a bunch of a moped actually, vaulted a bunch of of, of fences and tackled the guy. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch was driving along in a, I think in a cab, saw somebody being mugged, jumped out of the cab, saved the guy. Um, a good one is Ryan Gosling because this is like a kind of like reflex thing. Ryan Gosling is I think crossing Fifth Avenue in New York City. And a British tourist is next to him, and, and you know how, like, the traffic is the opposite in Britain. Mm -hmm. So she steps directly into traffic in front of a yellow cab that is about to run her over. Oh, Ryan Gosling reaches out his arm and pulls her out of the way of the cab uh, in an instant. Um, wow. So these – now, you're right. Like, uh, is it a publicity stunt? I don't think so, in the sense that all the stars that have done this have were then would then say – uh, you know, anyone would do this. They didn't say, like, I'm a hero or I'm special. In fact, they always said the opposite. Mm -hmm. I would hope so. I feel like they'd get bad publicity. It wouldn't work if they <laughs> just praised themselves. Yeah, they just said, well, it's because of my heroic nature. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a little obvious at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but it also might be that, uh, you know, other people rescue people and they don't have publicists. But... Um, so, you, so mm -hmm. that part, that could be a factor, but I would say again, you know, Harrison Ford, I think it's four times, Tom Cruise six times, and here's a really good one. So listen to the Jamie Foxx story. Jamie mm -hmm. Foxx, a year ago, is sitting in his mansion in Hidden Valley, California. Mm -hmm. he, here's a loud bang, and he looks at his security camera, and he can see like there's like a truck or something on fire in front of his house. He gets in his car 
he has to drive down to his front do- doorway because it's so far away. And when he arrives there, there's an overturned truck and there's a man trapped in the truck. Okay, but this is where it gets strange. Another car is driving by and an EMT, which is like an emergency personnel guy, is driving right. by the, on the other side. Mm-hmm. And he jumps out of the car and both Jamie Foxx and the EMT arrive at the window of this guy who's about to be burned alive. The EMT guy knows what to do. He runs to his car and gets, there's like a tool that you use for breaking windows um, in a case like this. He runs back to the truck, hands the tool to Jamie Foxx, who is an actor. (laughs) Jamie Foxx then smashes the window, and the guy is still stuck in the car, and Jamie Foxx says to him, I think these are the exact exact lines, "Um, you got to help me or I'm going to have to leave you here. And at that moment, the to the guy that was in the car. Yeah, to the guy that's in the tr- in the in the truck. And at that uh-huh. moment, the guy pushes with his legs. Jamie Foxx and the EMT grab the guy, pull him out of the truck, and within two or three minutes, the the truck is entirely in flames. And I've seen the video; it it really did happen that way. There's a video of who is who is recording it. I think like some people drove up just a few minutes later and filmed this burning truck. Wow. And, and so it's also more readily available to to actually see because we live in an age of social media. So people are around with their phones constantly when something like that happens. Exactly. Like when Harrison Ford pulled his phone out of the car, there's like a picture of him. Like he's, you can see him like at the upside down car. He's there. Um, so yes, exactly. And and you know and yeah, and here's the thing too. I mean, we might think, oh well, like these guys, they've got easy lives, and it's. You know, you know, they're kind of like high in testosterone. Of course, they might do this. But if you're Jamie Foxx and your entire, you know, living is based on your face, you shouldn't be sticking your face inside a burning truck. That's a good point. He actually, Jamie Foxx has more to lose than you or I by doing that, in, in, in my thinking, anyways. So do you get into the, re- like, do you analyze the reasons why maybe that's something that they don't consider at the time, like it's a fight or flight and they, they don't think about their own career, um, they're just there to help a fellow being. Do you talk about that in your film or do you take a different approach? Yes, of course. Of course. We started to ask the question, why? Like, why Why do the stars do this? Okay. And and, and the answers are interesting. So, so, there, so I, there's a few explanations. So a simple one. The simplest one we chased first was the theory of power posing. So, so power posing is the theory that if you hold certain poses, which mm-hmm. actors kind of know, that it changes your body chemistry. So if mm-hmm. you engage in heroic poses, let's say, like standing tall and shoulders out, it, it may raise your testosterone levels. That was the theory. And testosterone is associated with bold individual action. So we're all kind of like, you know, something happens, we're all freaking out. So there's an example. Tom Cruise was in Santa Monica uh, during a rainstorm, which is a bit unusual, and a woman was hit by a, a car in a hit-and-run. She's lying in the road. Apparently, a whole bunch of people just watched. They just watched this woman, like, literally lie in the road, injured, mm-hmm. until Tom Cruise pulled up, jumps <laughs> out of his SUV, and runs over to her. Um, I should point out that there's a number of Tom Cruise movies where a woman is lying prone, and Tom Cruise, the actor, runs over to her. It's a, it's a common theme in his films. 
Right, so he probably also uh, more readily recognizes it than anybody else. <laughs> yes, and this actually points to a more convincing theory of actually what's probably going on. The power posing might be a factor, meaning you power pose all day, you are more, you know, you're more testosterone-ish, and you'll you'll jump into action. That's a possibility, and yeah. I have found that true. Like actors that I know and are more liable to jump into anything, you know, including heroism, but. You know, they just, mm -hmm. they get into trouble. Right. So they're just more embodied people is the way I'd say it. But here's, I think, the more convincing explanation. So there's a guy named um, Phil Zimbardo, famous psychologist, was the, he's the originator of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Right, right, right. He, he uh, developed a theory called heroic imagination. And his okay. theory is that, that when most people encounter a violent, dangerous, or unusual circumstance, they freeze. And not only do they freeze, um, they will mirror the people around them. This is known as the bystander effect. And that's right. for, for survival. You, you look at the, what other people are doing because this is a scary situation to try to look for a way out. Yeah, yeah, it's like how uh, a bunch of groundhogs, even if they don't necessarily see the predator coming, they recognize the, the rest of them all perking up and being wary at the same time, so they just know that there's something that they have to pay attention to. Interesting, yes, that that totally follows. So, yes, yeah, something like that. So so apparently when there's somebody gets run over or there's a shooting or something like that, a lot of people just don't do anything. They just... They are literally frozen. It's an unconscious behavior. That's why it's important not to beat yourself up if you freeze in those circumstances because you didn't decide to do it. Your, your unconscious did. Hmm. Um, so the theory is that, that if you have images in your mind of something you could do and you actually hit on it by saying, yeah, Tom Cruise has seen that scene where he runs over to the prone woman yeah. many times probably. He's acted in it and he's seen it. And we know these people definitely watch their own movies. <laughs> do you think? Do you think Tom Cruise watches his own movies? Yes, I'm sure he does. <laughs> that's uh, that's a topic we should come back to. Watching yeah. your own movies. Yeah, I've got much to say on that. Yeah. So so sorry. So 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 the theory of heroic imagination is that if you have pictures, that allows you to break the freeze. The freeze is hard to break, and so. Because you've got the pictures, you then swing into action. And, and so this, um, this might be the reason. Now, that's intriguing because it really suggests, like, in a, in a culture like ours where people are so arguably cowardly on average, hmm. this suggests that maybe bravery could be taught. That we could learn to be braver people and stand up for each other more. That's what's interesting, too. That is fascinating. And so are you saying that it can be taught through visualization? Since somebody has already seen something, whether it was actually, uh, I mean, in Tom Cruise's case, he actually went through the actions. He may have been acting, but actors are also put in those situations to, uh, to, to actually feel what that character is going through. That's their job. Do you do you use the idea of visual, visualization, or is it uh, role-playing that helps somebody learn the same sort of like, like heroism? I, I, I think you're, the answer is actually both. I think you're, you are, not only are you one, right once, you're actually right twice. Oh, I love this. Tell my parents. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your, your daughter <laughs> is so right. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, because it is both. It is, 
is it is visualization. So yes, first you see the movie, um, and I should mention something really interesting. It's something we didn't put in the film, but it, it, I always find this mind blowing. If you look at like a crazy character like Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm-hmm. who was both like a, you know a, a star of weightlifting, a movie star, and the governor of California. Yeah. Um, one thing he always said, and people would just sort of laugh like that's funny, is he said, "I saw everything before it happened." He said, "I visualized myself being the, the Mr. Universe." And then it happened. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, and then he said he visualized himself as a movie star in Hollywood. And this is when he's an Australian, Austrian, sorry, weightlifter. Mm-hmm. And then people were like, how is that going to happen? You're Austrian with a weird accent and you look funny. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then, and then, um, and then he, then he, when he was an actor, he said, I could be governor of California. And then he did that too. And people laughed at him at that point too. That's right. But all, this whole time he visualized it. So visualization is extremely powerful. I think it's more powerful for some people. It obviously really works for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah. It look, it, it has a pattern of it working. So, so the other side of what you mentioned also, which is the the idea of like role play, is also true. So if you embody heroic roles and remember to embody heroic roles. So, for example, in a threatening situation, your body freezes. You probably adopt a kind of wimpy posture, actually as a safety mechanism, because you don't want to be a threat necessarily to something you don't understand. Right. So if you go back to, which like a movie star who works out a lot might anyways go back to a stronger, more affirmative pose, then you get the body chemistry and the thinking that goes with it. Now all of a sudden you're in a you're in a situation to act. Wow. So, so that. It, sorry, go ahead. Is it, it um, when you're talking about it being something that can be learned? The the visualization you have the mental capacity to bring yourself closer to it. But does the idea of the physicality? You're talking about people who work out and have actual strong bodies. Does that is there a psychosomatic connection that makes it a, a stronger possibility to, I don't know, manifest your dreams? Well, it's actually, interestingly enough, I would say it's somewhat of an acting question. You know, one of the, you know, when you're an actor, mm-hmm. you um, you are often like mystified by the different, you know, schools, Stanislavski and um, uh, the Meisner. Various. And, yeah. Sorry, say that again. Meisner, yes. Stanislavski, yeah, yeah, all the different schools of thought, schools of acting. Yeah, so I was always concerned with Grotowski. Though oh. Grotowski is not seen as a practical school of acting, Grotowski's revolutionary theory, which goes back to Poland in the 60s or something like that, is body memory. He says the body remembers. And that's literally what it is. Like that We know that feeling. Tom Cruise is there. He's like, there's something scary going on. But then, he's, then he goes, he puts his shoulders back, and the body remembers. Like muscle memory? Yes, like muscle memory. That's exactly what it is. It is muscle memory. Mm-hmm. Now, Grotowski figured it out a long time ago, and he developed a technique. He famously, what he did to demonstrate his, the wildness of his technique is he would ask people about car accidents that happened to them, and they would ask them to remember the details, and they would be a little fuzzy, naturally. And then he'd say, okay... Put yourself exactly in the position you're in at the end of the accident. You know, like 
under the crumpled car or outside the window or whatever it was. And he said that there would be this really very weird moment when the person found the position, there'd be this weird state of remembering that would come over them and they would often tear up or uh, feel it, you know, and then they had a crystal clear recollection of the whole accident. Wow. Now, this is something that actors know. We all know the body remembers. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and it's in a lot of acting techniques. So that's why this is about, this movie, weirdly enough, is about acting. Because I think that acting is not just important for entertaining people. It actually can make us better people. The way a lot of us know that anyone who does act actually knows that acting is probably making them a better person. Yeah, and then you, when a, you know, an actor doesn't have a documentary to back her up, but she's at a holiday Christmas party trying to explain to her parents, you know, I chose the arts because I'm making the world a better place, even though I'm going out for audition after audition for cheerleader number three. Uh, but, yes. That, <laughs> but I also get what you're saying. Yes, it, it, that is a, that's like another story, the sad reality of, of I, I, but, but I actually think, right, even when we conceived this film, part of the idea was to say, I think we can get better jobs for actors that are more like, like yoga instructors, where actors could show people like a whole bunch of things, how to be confident. Um, there's a whole other side to this film, too, which really shows that if you want to deepen love in your life, mm-hmm. that you should practice acting in love. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of evidence that acting in love creates love. Um, so there's a whole, there's so many actual applications. Um, I think that acting can be used to promote happiness um, by acting out the behaviors of happiness. And mm-hmm. again, actors kind of know this, um, but they are right. But they're cast as cheerleader number two. Yeah. Oh, number two. That's a step up for me. Uh, <laughs> I, I would go for number three. <laughs> and it's funny that you bring up uh, the parallelism of yoga. I'm actually going through yoga teacher training right now, and it's been a really fascinating journey to to start to learn the parallelisms between what yoga can offer and the, the physicality and, and how you incorporate breathing into your practice and what that does for you on a, a, a mental level and just an overall what it, what it does for your life. Like that's, it, there are studies that prove the magnificent effects that it can have on your life. And a lot of it I have been finding has this, this uh, analogous sort of um, equation with acting and what I've learned in the acting world and I was talking with my yoga teacher uh the uh today and and we were talking about how um I I was mentioning that my mind went to a place because I also do a lot of comedy and I've spent the past couple of days just writing jokes. I've been, I've had a really good flow. And so I've kind of shut myself in my room and I've been writing a bunch of jokes and some stuff that was coming out was questioning exactly what you're talking about. The, the fact that the more that you learn, the more that I'm learning what yoga can do for me. And particularly I've been thinking about how we are learning to use higher vibration language to mm-hmm. speak speak about ourselves in a more kinder mm-hmm. fashion and be very aware of what the words that we're using. I was wondering, you know, does that, is this going to 
actually make me less funny because self-deprecate self-deprecation is is one of my go-tos and I, I I love putting myself down to have other people laugh at me with me but I'm wrapped up in this idea of how much energy do I give to being kind to myself and how much do I allow myself to actually use unkind words towards myself you know what I mean yes um I have a take on that, but it's like it's, I'm completely wearing a different hat. Like I, I work, I, I work also as a hypnotist. Mm. So, so in that business, often I work with people who have trauma, and our job is to de-traumatize them. And yeah. I've often had artists who worry that you know if I get to be a kind of happier, healthier person, <laughs> it'll be boring. Exactly. <laughs> the answer is no, because. Because literally, like, part of it's a voyage anyway. So the point is, if you have trauma, you've been to hell. And you're not going to forget <laughs> it anytime soon. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> and, and, and what trauma means is that you are reliving, like, terrible experiences over and over again. It's sort of like a broken record, literally. So I don't, I think not being a broken record makes you more creative. So that's, that would be my take. Hmm, that's a really good point. On the flip side, one of the things that I have constantly, actually one of the reasons why I started the podcast, um, and I've mentioned it before, but on, on the podcast, not to you, this is the first time we're chatting, but yeah. I have played roles that, um, oh, and maybe maybe speaking to you is going to change my career as well, because I've played so many roles where I have been hired to cry and die, and I, yeah. I hit a point where yeah. I, I actually realized that I had a director come up to me in between takes one day on set and said, all right, I want you to drop one tear from your right eye. Go. And he walked away. I'm like, oh, I, I understand yeah. what sort of a, a pigeonhole, I'm, I, like how I'm being typecast. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I had an experience on set where... I went, um, I realized afterwards that I went, quote unquote, method, and I, I mentally went to a space that was absolutely psychologically unsafe. You know, I, I sincerely believed what the energy that I was experiencing as a very dark character. I played a very sinister character, and, and it affected my mentality, and I didn't realize how, how upset I felt. I, I allowed myself to live in her shoes, and that that's super fascinating to me but I am so much more aware now even just a couple of weeks ago I shot a project where I had to just cry all day I was begging my my beloved to not go off to war and so I I had to put bring myself to a place of of that kind of sadness and I I, I felt it not just the post set blues afterwards but I could feel it took a couple of days to actually pull myself back out of that mind frame and that energy and it it, it it sometimes it feels a little worrisome to constantly if that's your job if you're constantly being hired to be put into those sorts of roles um it's it's worrisome as to what sorts of memories you're storing in your brain if you believe you're actually going through these processes so you're talking about being able to shift even the kinds of roles that actors are booking Yes. Well, I was going to add to what you're saying is that um, we have a section in the film about the dark side. And, of course, mm -hmm. there is one, meaning meaning when you play villains, like there's a famous example of a – so even Moliere, so let me tell you an interesting story. How did Moliere die? He was he was in the Malade Imaginaire, the, the, the hypochondriac, in fact, that's sort of the name of his play, his mm -hmm. last play, where he was acting in it. 
And he played a man every night who says, I think I'm dying. I think I'm dying. And then, then at the end of the last performance, he said, I think I'm dying. And they sort of thought, people thought he was kind of joking. And then he died. Um, oh, my God. So, so the, the, and then we found a whole bunch of examples of this. So there was a famous example of a British actor who was in a radio play, played a man who died suddenly of a heart attack. Uh, he died suddenly of a heart attack. Um, in the middle of the play? I don't think it was during the show, it was maybe right after, but it was reported as sort of happening, you know, in and around the presentation. Right, okay. There's been people who also who, who get killed or die on stage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but also Heath Ledger, famous example. Um, yeah. In the, in the Dark Knight, the important thing is that he dies a bunch of times, in effect, and then he dies in real life. Um, the, the recently Canadian actor, the guy from Glee, what's his name? Where? Oh, um, Corey Montes, uh, yeah. This is not, I don't know why this part's not well known. What's the movie he's in right before he dies? He, Mechanic is the name of the movie. It's not a great film, but he plays a, uh, a drug addict, a very dark, miserable drug addict. <sighs> Corey Montes, uh, dies of a drug, over, heroin, alcohol overdose in his hotel room. Yeah. Um, and I, also, like, there's a bunch of things that we couldn't get into the film where we just it was it felt like another film. So a whole other film. I think you're onto something. Is what this does, what theater and acting does to women, because women are often, especially in, more in film than I think in theater. In, in film, women are so often cast as murder victims, corpse, yes. beautiful corpse, not beautiful corpse. You know, all yeah. the different corpses you can play. Mm-hmm. And that can't be good for you. Um, you know, I should mention one other factor. It, it's not a one-to-one ratio, meaning if you play a corpse in a movie, does that mean you're going to die? No. But what's in it, it's really the embodiment of things that I think creates the phenomena. So, yeah. And what's interesting is that there's a, this is a, a uniquely, in my view, more of a North American phenomena. Why is that? Because the tradition of acting in American cinema in particular is you play yourself. Tom Cruise more or less plays himself in every movie. So does Harrison Ford. Oh, wow. But if you take a British actor, the British actor is in the habit of putting on the role, they're character actors, they Mm -hmm. warm up, they they get into role, and then they take themselves out of role afterwards. So so Harrison Mm -hmm. Ford is more or less playing himself just at the higher volume and but because one of the things that people question all the time is they said if your theory is true anthony hopkins should be a mass murderer and (laughs) he is he was an alcoholic but but um but he's not he's apparently a nice guy so i think it's because he's from the british tradition of he's very consciously putting on the role it's not him he doesn't embody it the way he normally embodies his emotions and then he takes the role off at the end of the day. While Canadian or American actors more or less play themselves, and particularly women are cast, you know, as their bodies or as themselves, which says they embody that. And so, of course, women would walk out of roles feeling like hypersexualized, um, depressed, um, you know, static, static characters. So I can see that really um, being hard on women, for sure. Yeah. It's been, there was a woman in Toronto, I just can't remember her name, who did a research project on it that basically said there's 
a number of roles that are really bad for women's health, and that totally makes sense. Does your documentary talk about not only how this affects each individual actor, but how what the roles that, for example, for, for women, what we typically get cast as further ingrains that stereotype and how it might affect the mass of women or general public that is consuming this as well? Is it kind of a, does it loop back into itself and, and feed its own bias and, and make it more likely that, that this is a possibility for more actors down the road? Yeah, it is a feedback loop. I think, I mean, I think people have been challenged like the hypersexualization of women that, you know, uh, one funny example, when we were looking at the science of how this phenomenon works, we actually found this sort of interesting study on high heels. So mm-hmm. high heels are intriguing because high heels cause women, when they wear, whether you feel this way or not, they cause you to act like you are essentially in like an animal in heat. So cats or any uh, a certain mammals, when they go into heat, they do something called lordosis, which is an arching of the back mm-hmm. um, that's very specific. Well, when women wear high heels, they are forced into that position. So they are acting sexy, whether they choose to or not. Oh. So all these sort of things are also, I think they just are contradictory because rather than sort of choosing the role to be sexy kind of on your own time, you're 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 forced into it literally by the clothes and the look, the makeup, etc. I'm I'm just trying to figure out right now why I like I I, I do wear heels out, but I do also have a specific uh, tendency to put heels on while I'm doing household chores like laundry <laughs> for myself. Like now I'm just trying to figure out what's that doing to me by myself when I'm not even doing it for anybody else. I, I see that as, in a way, could be harmless in the sense that it, it's not the wearing of heels, like putting yourself into lordosis, there's nothing wrong with that, especially if you feel that way. It's it's that it has a, it's just that that a woman has no choice. If she's if she's put in heels and she has to wear them and that's it, she, right. she is sexualized. Maybe, maybe it's because I'm doing things that I find, I feel like they are very unsexy and it's my moment yeah. to just be sexy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For for just me, I'm I'm making myself want to do laundry more. There's there's no other way I'll do laundry now. Is the only way I can is if I put heels on, or else it just sucks. That's intriguing. I mean, what we did um one of the things that actually got cut out of the film was a whole section on how to act sexy because it's kind of people underestimate it. Um, oh, why did it get cut out of the film? It was actually. It's, there's a problem when you make documentaries is that sometimes you run into something that's like another movie and it mm. felt like its own movie like it just was it wasn't fitting the structure of the film and, and uh, it's totally a fascinating subject I, I could easily make a movie about it but but sorry the, the, the broadcaster was like okay stick to you know more or less stick to the subject so yeah I feel like that would be one of those topics that you would need to explore a little more. It's not one of those, you know, and also here's yeah. a component about sex and now back to the rest of that. That should be explored on uh, more of a, a wider ground. That was exactly the dilemma. It was like, here we go. Here's like this crazy sex, sexual scene. Mm-hmm. And now back to like scientists. So it just, yeah, it was, it was complicated. Yeah. Well, the science of sex, it's, 
it's its own. We don't mm. explore it. It's starting to become um, less taboo and more studied. But I, I think that it just also comes from a place that was very misunderstood. Even just, it, even I think I was just listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about how where vibrators came from and how women, um, you know, it it was like the number seven household product in 19, I don't know, 20 or something. I can't remember the exact date, but, um, but it was, it started as something that helped women deal with hysteria. It was called hysteria, which would just meant general overall body pain, like cramps and like whatever was related to probably period pains went on. But, uh, but yeah, there's so much more study happening about that, that you you should do a sequel, a follow-up to just zoning in on, on one particular field known as sex. Uh, There is actually a woman who saw the film and is, and is talking about launching workshops because what's intriguing about it. One of the things that's intriguing is that, what what the culture sells you is a is I would say a static sex phenomena, which is it sort of says like this person standing here is sexy, and uh, and what is really sexy is actually how you move, um, and it's actual movement and behavior that makes someone sexy, not mm-hmm. just that they stand like that they pose in a you know in a picture. Um, okay. But we're sold the kind of um, pose in a picture of sexiness. So she she wants to do a kind of style of burlesque education that's more on the idea that, that which is true, that everyone can be sexy. She was struck by the fact she went to a burlesque show in Montreal where there was just a huge diversity of body types and genders. Mm-hmm. And she just was amazed how she found everybody sexy because like, they were good. They were talented. Was she from, not from Montreal? No, uh, it don't just happen that she saw in Montreal. She is from Montreal, but um, okay. So, so um, she developed this idea that that this should be a after she saw you are what you actually saw. It should be a broader, taught phenomena where where this is you know a lot of people don't feel they're sexy or they feel like I have to look like so and so to be sexy. Well, actually, you really don't. That what she saw was that it is movement that. It's the way you move and how you move and how you feel about the way you move mm-hmm. that makes people sexy. Yeah, and that does tie into, you know, the same thing with acting. If you don't if you don't believe it, whatever you're going through, if you don't feel what you're going through, it's going to be difficult for the audience to believe that about you. It, it's, uh, it's interesting to take that idea, that notion of, you know, if you if you can move yourself into a belief, if you find your way of of movement that makes you feel sexy um and and people can read that on you if they think that you find yourself sexy and you're you're giving off that air it's more easy for them to believe it about you and 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 that that does seem to sit with you know the the idea of how how one gets into a role uh as an actor but it's interesting to take that and dichotomize it with the the fact that we do have a visual representation of what is standard beauty you know you think about the the model industry and and how there's there's so much that goes into uh a photograph that portrays what current beauty looks like and and we have static representations of that that you know women pick up tabloids or 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 fashion magazines and and then compare themselves to that and and think that that is the standard of beauty as opposed to it coming from a place of movement. 
that's right, they think, they, they think it has a kind of deeper, or they might feel that it's a deeper eternal value and that they, by comparison, are, you know, a schlump or something like that. Like, um, and it, it's very, I think it's very hard to, to defy. But it, mm-hmm. it is, what I'm saying, it is a kind of bullshit construct which is worth challenging for everybody, you know, and, 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 um, uh, and I think even that the science, as I'm saying, w- w- one thing, you know, that we, that we discovered in, like, you know, it's even interesting too that there's a guy who broke down, um, uh, it, there's a lot of, like, embodiment is a new kind of emerging science. Uh, I can tell you why, it's intriguing. So just general, the embodiment of things, Mm-hmm. Is, is its own science and there was a guy who studied motion by turning people into dots so you take a human body and they turn them into like 12 dots and what was interesting was that he would take so-called like attractive people and have them walking and then he'd have like so-called unattractive people <laughs> okay there was a hundred percent recognition rate meaning you're just watching a bunch of blobby dots move around and somebody what? would go whoa those are sexy dots. Well, okay, wait a minute. Where are the, are the dots? Is it like uh, on their extremities, like their their hands? And like, yeah. what are the general spots that they're putting dots but on? You, you don't even see like so much a human shape. You have a vague sense of of dots representing the person moving, and and you can recognize sexy dots. <laughs> so you recognize not sexy dots. <laughs> oh my god, I love this. I yeah. like it. Where is, is this study open to the public to see? Is there something? Yeah, it's, like, it's, a, it's a guy at Queens who did the original research, he, and and um, I know it's referenced in uh, Amy Cuddy's book Presence. She talks about it. Okay. I, I I met him actually. I met the guy. He he was a little bit you know baffled that people were so intrigued by his study, but they were. <laughs> Of course. Why? Why would he be baffled? That is, that is the most fascinating thing yeah. that I have heard in a long time. Dots, like for sure, understanding what sexy dots are and yeah. what not so sexy. Oh my God, I'm I'm gonna be yeah. in a hole of Wikipedia tonight. I'm sure. Yeah. But <laughs> that is so fascinating. Is that in your documentary? No, I, I. It was like a, we should have put it in, but no, because just there was just, there were so many things we cut out, unfortunately. But yeah, he should have been in there. Okay, well then that's the title of when you branch off and you do your your version of just what sex looks like, the field, the study of sex. That's the title, Sexy Dots. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I love about it, it just shows like it's you know that sexiness has lot has lots of factors like the you know and the people move and it doesn't matter how much you weigh or what your body shape is you move move sexy you are sexy you know. That's awesome, and you you. Have I understand you're a laughologist as well? Uh, your publicist mentioned that you're a laughologist, and I I think I remember you doing some exercises when I was at your talk that incorporate this idea of your movement or your what you're doing your with your body, the action you're producing with your body, how it affects your mind. What were did did you not have some of us laughing for a particular reason in the audience? Yeah. So so. Part of the, even the origin of the film, like the specific origin was, I do, like, I, I do laughter yoga, I developed a, a, a laughter, I, I made a documentary for CTV 10 years ago called Laughology, and it was a, it was actually the first feature documentary about laughter, which sounds kind of weird, but there's been many documentaries about humor, things that are funny, but nobody had said, hey, what about laughter? And, hmm. um, and laughter is this whole other thing, it's a, it's a, it's different from humor, it's actually, one theory is that laughter is millions of years old. It's, it's animals that they think can laugh, but 
but humor is a very recent phenomenon, maybe only tens of thousands, I think it's maybe 100,000 years old. So they're, they're two different things entirely, though we see them often as the same. Right. So I would often do, I often get hired by like weird organizations, banks or, or different organizations to make crowds laugh because there's a way to make huge crowds laugh without telling jokes. Now, why? Because jokes often offend people and laughter <laughs> often doesn't. Mm-hmm. So often I would do this and a con- like we would have a great time, a lot of fun, but somebody would say to me, you know, often afterwards, yeah, that was interesting, but aren't we kind of faking it? Like, like, because the exercises often involve, if you understand this as an actor, acting the behavior of acting, of laughing, sorry, you act like you're laughing, and the next thing you know, you really are laughing. Mm-hmm. The, re- the mechanism behind that is mysterious a little bit. I have a theory about how it works, but um, so, so when people would say this to me, I would be like, I know for sure that you can fake your way to the most amazing laughing fit, especially when you do it with people. A group of people get together and they do laughing exercises. They will laugh their asses off, literally. <laughs> yeah. So I knew that, and then I thought, when they said this, I kind of, it got my back up, and I was like, I wonder what else you can fake. And then I sort of read this Tom Cruise story, and then I was like, hey, maybe you can fake heroism. Maybe you can fake happiness. Maybe you can fake your way to love, even. And then I found out it was all true. You know, you can, there's even research that shows that you can make yourself younger by faking that you're younger, like just doing more goofy young things. Yeah. I was talking about jokes that if I was about to make a joke about what women can fake and maybe eventually lead to having a real one. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this uh, podcast is explicit because my podcast partner usually swears. But okay. <laughs> Good. But we'll save that joke for when you make the the sex documentary. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. But, but um, the, actually, I was the, the point was actually that that part of the the motivation behind this film was this. I really felt that that like one thing that acting taught me was I saw there was like be, you know behind the fence there are all these interesting things like all these people were like oh, I don't know if I can fake laugh and I'm like you you don't guys don't know what you're missing. Yeah. Think, you know, same thing with in love too. You know, there's a some really really interesting behaviors, love behaviors that people are like, oh, I don't want to fake, you know, love. It, I, it's got to be authentic. And I'm like, yeah. you don't know what you're missing. Um, and so 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 that that was one of the motivations behind the film. I was like, there's way more here, and it, and this huge human potential that's basically unexplored and. Luckily, the network agreed and and uh, and bought into it, and now like the film has happened. But I got to say, like it's like a weird movie to, for people to see because they all walk out going like, "This body thing I have could be doing other stuff." <laughs> <laughs> this body thing is yeah. how I have always referred to my corporeal form. Yeah. I'm so glad there's a film that acknowledges that. <laughs> That's so fascinating, though, even especially when it comes to love. I think that that is also a field that is um, so misunderstood. And, and yeah. even these days, look at the rates of of the divorce rates. What is it? 50% of divorces end up, or divorces end up in marriage, of course. Like, that's interesting. Of marriages, yeah. 50% of marriages end up in divorce, uh, and, and that's just the first marriages. I think the second, it increases to 70% or something. And yeah. and our what love has become, that play between institutional love, like marriage, um, 
and and how we are a lot freer in our um even just sexual orientation, people being legally allowed to love who they want to love or marry who they want to love, it's it's changed the way that we we view it. And and I'm somebody who comes from a you know a frame of mind. I'm trying to find higher vibration language to describe my non-committal tendencies. Mm-hmm. But but even the idea of using your visualization or your body or or like changing your belief about what love is to you or you know stopping telling yourself that you have commitment issues and understanding that you can you can change your belief about love and then eventually find love something that you know if you start to believe that you can find somebody that you would spend the rest of your life with that that might actually manifest you know, like a really funny example of what you're talking about is that there's actually a great documentary on Netflix called, um, there's a series called Explained and they have a section one called Monogamy. And I was really blown away because I've always felt that there was sort of like a, you know, a false myth like Noah's Ark and, you know, when people always refer to animals, they'd say, you know, animals are all naturally monogamous. You know, you see, you see like cows in a couple and bears in a couple. And I was like, really? Do you see cows in a couple or whatever? And then, what this documentary reveals is that not only is actual monogamy like rare, extremely rare in the animal world, like the only that the only animals that are really truly monogamous in the entire animal world is like this obscure species of tapeworm. Uh, yes. <laughs> they're, they're like they're totally monogamous. Oh God, if that doesn't make you fall in love with monogamy, yeah. I don't know yeah. what will. But <laughs> The documentary really shows that monogamy is a social construct, and so no wonder we're all freaked out by it. I'm not, I'm not against like loyalty or commitment or any of those things. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that part of everyone's issue probably is that they're struggling with this artificial, false story about that we're we're like we're supposed to be naturally monogamous. No, we're not. Yeah. No animal is except for the tapeworms. So. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I don't know why my mind is now picturing what that wedding would look like. <laughs> yeah, that would be the first wave, the first introduction of institutionalization and how it changes their love. <laughs> oh wow, that yeah, I I, I was um, I don't think I've seen that documentary, but uh, I'm just clearly addicted to podcasts and, and was listening to how. Um, the how the study of different species of of apes or um chimps how they they were not monogamous exactly what you're talking about the the styles of of connections between male and female i can't remember the the exact species of apes i, I think i think i know where you're going this you're going to bring up bonobos yes so this yes. is this is a really interesting question is like are we chimpanzees or are we bonobos so there's two kinds of actually chimpanzees and and the the chimpanzees are these extremely hierarchical vengeful more kind of couple oriented um monkeys and then you have the bonobos who actually resolve all their problems with sex they're like yeah yeah if people get tense or there's a, an issue they like everybody has sex yeah let's guys let's all just fuck let's yeah about our problems and it's also more a little more female dominated. It's like, and it really seems, it seems to suggest that you have a female dominated culture. You've got way more sex and more way more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, the chimpanzees are more like hitting each other with sticks and stuff. And and um, so 
Uh, yeah, there's sort of like an interesting question because we they are our ancestors, probably. Like, which which are we? Um, yeah, and what would have happened if Hillary Clinton was president? Yeah, that's right. It's like right now the ch- the chimpanzees won. Well, right? right? Yeah. Why couldn't that bonobo change the entire United States to yeah. uh, a sexy culture? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Huh. I know, there are some these things are exciting. Like I, I, you know, obviously I guess I'm a filmmaker, but I believe ideas have power, and but I think they have more power these days because because you know we need them and uh, and they change people. So yeah. They really do. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you explore with, with you are what you act. I, I was going to say, we're, I don't want to give away too much, but the way it goes is that there really isn't, like, here's a good way of understanding is that why wouldn't you be what you act in a sense? And and what's interesting is that that as a culture, we are beheaded is the best way of saying it, which means that we were disembodied from our bodies. And I think the device that was used is the common school desk. So when you went to school, you sat in a desk, and you didn't have a body. The teacher just addressed your head. You're a head that walked around with a slave body. And then usually because of sex or something else, you discovered quite suddenly, oh, I do have a body, and it, and it does things. But you, the, myth, the myth that you that your body was separate from you was maintained by the culture. So it's just this thing that you drag around places or maybe you decorate so that you're hot or whatever, but it's okay. still – it's still somebody else, but what what the actual evidence is, and this is sort of the crux of the film, is that we are our bodies. In fact, that the brain doesn't have a single thought without using the body. The body is a continuous metaphor of the way the brain thinks and feels. Everything is a body metaphor. Wow. Is this a direct shot to Descartes? There's, it's not about, I think, therefore I am. It's yes. about thinking. It's about acting. Descartes was wrong. Is this is where this is going, and that's right that that uh, that we're that we're we that we're bodies, and and um, that that's empowering and great. And and the more we are embodied, like Tom Cruise, the more powerful we become, because bo- bodies make reality even more than minds do. If that makes uh-huh. sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, that bodies are what carry out the manifestation of whatever preceded it in its in, in your mind yeah exactly you know it's one weird thing when you mentioned yoga one thing I, again i didn't cut but if somebody i guess if somebody listens get this i guess this idea but i would please credit me <laughs> i do yoga too and i i developed a theory while i was doing yoga that it would be really interesting to find all the yoga teachers such as yourself mm-hmm. and 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 measure them measure them before they were yoga teachers and then measure them after. Measure what? Measure their height. Because oh. I think that almost everybody who does a lot of yoga gets taller. Now, why? There's a lot of talk of finding more space in your spine. That's for right. sure. That's it. And and they act taller. They just act mm-hmm. taller for hours in a day or something like that. So they actually get, I think, you get taller. They definitely get stronger. Um, so... So it's a really interesting manifestation of you are what you act too. We just again didn't get it in the film, but I, I I don't care. I just want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know what? You have to start somewhere. And I yeah. adore everything that I have heard from you so far. And I was I it was just kind of a, a magical moment when your publicist 
connected with me and asked if if we could bring you onto the show. I'm like, I know that guy. I've listened to that guy. I've been in the audience okay. for one of his talks. It was it was so it was just magic. It was great. I'm I'm so happy that we got to connect and talk about this. Yeah. And I, I hope you do make a sequel because, like yeah. you said, there's so much space to explore in these topics. You know, it's funny too. Why I'm excited about talking to you is that when we when we were making it, I remember I said to my producer, I said. You know, like on some level, we're making this film for actors, which, which, like, you never say that when you're making a film. You say we're, you know, we're making it for poor people or for the, yeah, the silence. Who is your demographic? Ourselves. Yeah. We're making it for ourselves, not the masses. We're not looking to make money. We did not get into this industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just very meta. Yeah. But now I actually feel like this is the first time I've actually have talked to somebody who's actually kind of, you know, who's obviously an actor mm-hmm. and, and how it and how like I don't even have to explain things to you. I don't even I don't even need to. You just I don't have to talk because you'll already know what I'm gonna say. You yeah, know, we um, could have done an entirely silent episode right. for our podcast. Yeah, with mime. Yeah, and, and again, it's not about benefiting the masses. This is purely it was for ourselves anyway. So if they cannot hear what is happening yeah. between our brains, that's uh, too bad. Yeah. That, that's your fault. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm really glad that I got to chat with you. I Likewise. we've we've been talking for um just over an hour now. It's uh <laughs> I, I've been chewing up a bunch of your time. You're still you're still sitting on the side of a road somewhere, aren't you? Yeah, in the dark. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely want to talk to you again. I mm-hmm. I want to let you go so that you're not freezing in a car. Um, but. I, I would love to chat with you again. Let me know when you're coming back to Toronto. It would be great to yeah. connect and grab coffee and yeah. face-to-face. Um, yeah. And anytime, anytime you have another project on the go that you want to promote, I want to, ch- I want to chat with you about it again. Sure. For sure, for sure. Yeah, it's, been a, it's really been wonderful. A lot of fun, too. Oh, great. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to plug or, or let our listeners know about? No, I just think for, you know, you know, when I said it was for actors, I didn't mean it also just to say, like, it's only practice. I just think I'm going to tell you one other, one little story that I think is maybe interesting. Yes, please do. When, when we're so so when we made this film, we discovered like acting has incredible potential for human transformation. Mm-hmm. So not only can it make you more confident, probably make you more heroic or courageous, probably make you happier by you know if you act out happy behaviors, um, and even help you fall in love or deep in love that you're already in. So the question to ask, why wouldn't people do this? And what's interesting is because people are afraid of acting. They actually have a fear, a very common fear of acting, which is not well understood. We had to chase it for a while. And we, we thought initially it was because everyone has bad high school theater experiences. We thought <laughs> like universal. Everyone has bad theater. And then... Turns out it's not true because some people have great high school theater experiences. Just a lot of us have bad ones. Right. But there's a there's a really weird explanation, and it's probably true in my opinion, which is it's, it has to do with the theory of mind. The theory of mind is that when until about the age of six, we don't have minds in the sense we don't sense that we have a mind and other people have minds too. We just think the world is like fun. And mm. before six, children don't have any problem role playing. Um, you know, uh, acting out behaviors, uh, b- becoming things like being a cat or a truck or whatever. They just do it. Yeah, and they're not self-reflective about it? That's right. They're not self-reflective. When they develop minds, though, 
then all of a sudden they they know and realize they are being judged by other minds. So other minds are suddenly judging them, right. and most people lose the will to perform. They they are pro- they probably have negative experiences like stop, you know, you're not a cat, or you look yeah. stupid or whatever it is, and so they develop a fear of performing and acting. And then the the interesting is that only a small minority of people, such as probably yourselves, still do it. And oh, yeah, I'm still a weirdo. I act like a cat on a regular basis in front of public. <laughs> See, you're a true, you're a true <laughs> actor. See, some people would say, I'm doing this so I can make it big in Hollywood. You're like, no, I just want to be a cat. Yeah, no, no. It's just, I mean, sometimes it, it like especially when you once you get into the industry and you you I guess in in sort of a parallel way way you develop that sensibility of of knowing that you are judged and and understanding the hierarchy of how to move to the next level and that you have to impress the people who are judging you or select mm-hmm. the, the particular people that you do need to impress. Um, mm-hmm. I think that does develop over time, but but yeah, you you can't. It, it also Improv, especially, and the world of comedy helps accelerate the understanding of being able to let go of that and knowing when and where to pull that into your awareness for business purposes. And and when you're on stage and you need to just, or you're in front of the camera and and you just need to be there, you just need to be present and and live in that cat's corporeal form. That that is who you are for that play or whatever it is. Yes, and and that, with that is... Like that, the point is that this is part of human nature actually performing. There was a guy, I understand, like a playwright who did pretty well, who said, All the world's a stage. (laughs) Often forget that. Yeah, they don't, they don't really know what that means. And what it actually means, I think, is that whether you like it or not, it's all a show. You might as well act. Yeah, I, I feel like I should break into song. You might as well <laughs> because it's all a show. Yeah, yeah, as you like it. <laughs> yeah, as you like the musical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> just, uh, just to paraphrase. Yeah, we we won't give any credit to Shakespeare. N- nothing to the part. We're we're no. gonna steal that. We'll make our own musical. No one will yeah. have any. And no one will be the wiser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's that's interesting. That is, yeah, and and it is so. It, it's socially constructed. The society that you live in just chips away uh, unless you really force. If you fight back and you, if you are determined to still be that cat at 32 years old, yeah. when you're in line at a bank. Uh, not that that's where I play out my my cat roles, but um, you know you, you do. You have to you have to fight against the the social constructs. To, to keep your sense of play. Yeah, keep your sense of play. Yeah. Yeah, never give up. Never surrender, like that famous Canadian philosopher once said. Never surrender. <laughs> yeah, he said that with his sunglasses on. I remember yeah, yeah. Canadiana. <laughs> uh, well, again, been amazing chatting yeah. with you. Okay. Let's let's definitely connect soon. Okay. And and thank you so much for joining. My us. pleasure. It was a lo- it was it was really delightful. Thank you. Okay, so you can clearly see from the interview, you can hear that uh, I just got, I got so excited. I was having so much fun talking to Albert that I completely 
forgot to mention anything about our one cool thing bit. <laughs> um, so so we're, we're doing our, our one cool things uh, outside of that. And I'm sure when we have him back, we can ask about cool things. I think it's safe to say that his cool thing is his documentary coming out because it's, it's, it's insanely cool. It sounds so cool. Everything he talked about was a cool thing. Yeah. There you go. So he, he is the cool he thing. He is the cool He's thing. He's his own cool thing. Right? I want to be my own cool yeah. thing. Yeah, because we want them to be like actionable things or intelligent things that can like teach our audience members things. He's literally just, he's a professor at everything he's doing right now, guys. He can, he fucking, can teach you. He's yeah. a magician. He teaches himself. Yeah. He, he manifested that. He, he, he theorized his way into existence and he, he's a self-taught made man. For sure. Okay, cool. Think that bit's done. Um, so for <laughs> our one cool things, mm-hmm. uh, this is also very evident as to where we are right now with like our own writing outside of this and what we're creating for for our projects. Um, our research goes very far. It's extensive research. You can. It's evident from our one cool things. My current one cool thing is... Guys, just basically anything and everything that John Mulaney has on Netflix, all of his specials, his stand-up specials are literally, they're, they're, he's just, he's such a, he's a performing genius. Like the way that he has that kind of stamina throughout his entire show, but then the, the playing to the height of his intellect throughout the entire, it's so well-crafted. This man is a genius and that guy is a conductor a composer and the audience is his orchestra he says laugh and they say how hard and when literally just it's magic it's magic to watch that i'm 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 very impressed with that man i think he's gonna go far i think he has uh you know he does need someone to throw him a freaking bone in his career obviously and that's why he's my one cool thing um he and that person who's throwing him a bone should definitely be me but regardless he's just he's he's a genius and that kid's gonna go far but you know well, isn't that funny? Because, you know, my one cool thing is also a comedian from the Georgetown improv scene. Oh! Isn't that funny? Oh, and I'm pretty I'm sure both of them have a few shows together. But I'm talking about Nick Kroll. But mainly the show that a friend of mine introduced me to called Big Mouth. Yeah, <laughs> shout out to that show. It needs some Sorry. support too. Shout out to my friend for uh, sharing it with me because, honestly, like... It changed my life. It's so funny. It's so hard. It's it's dirty, but like a little bit, it's a little taboo sometimes. I mean, not dirty. Dark. It's it's if you like swearing. I mean, yeah. you're listening to our fucking podcast, it's so not, I think you can deal with the goddamn big mouth. You know mouth. what? It's not. It, you think it's dirt. You do think it's dirt at first, but you know when you get close. Like as a kid, your mom thought you were dirty because you were playing in the yard forever, but it was just a tan. So maybe it's just a tan, or it's a little. Yeah. It's blue. It's yeah. a bruise. Like it's your a bruise. Bru- it's blue humor. But it's it's, it's great. Black. It's yeah. Like black honestly, black. if you have not seen Big Mouth yet, Netflix. Check that shit out. Yeah, that's on Netflix too, isn't it? Yeah. That's another company. Uh, shout out to Netflix. You know, that's a cool thing that we need to support. Yeah. Everybody, please throw your yeah. money towards Netflix. It's just, you know, Especially, little bits at a time yeah. in your donation. What, $7 a month? Would have no, denied, I think it? it's like 10 now. It might it's be 12. Up. It's so going great, But look at them go. Times are hard. Creep. Yeah, you know what? They need it. They do need it. So send your support in You know, but here's values. my issue with that. So we're going on a quick little rant. They're like, price putting up the price point, they should be putting better movies on there. Just saying. Well, I think that's the thing about Netflix. I think that they are breaking... Da- I don't know how they run their business, so I'm pulling this out of my own ass. But, um, I mean, they don't charge an extensive amount, but I think that they've understood that even they can niche. Like, there are certain things that are limited limited to U.S. Netflix yeah. that we can't see in Canada. So I hate that. So they're aware that they're, they're still treating us like a demographic. 
like the wherever they set up shop because even over in this uh in europe i don't remember what my sister was saying it's like over there but the packages that they put out there that they distribute it like the deals that they make for what phones are going to be airing or licensed to i guess um in, in those demographics they're I'm, I'm certain that they're still particular in those regards but they also they're smart in their business structure to literally just like pick up somebody like nick kroll and say hey, we know you make comedy, you do a good job, and they don't, they're not the kind of producers who get in the way. They're like, you can fucking do comedy, now run with it, go create a show, we trust you, whatever, sure. And that's why it ends up being such dark humor, like kind of dirty, because because they can push the boundaries. And and it's if you can do so well these days, especially in today's political climate, you do fucking deserve your own show. Oh, hell yeah. Good on Netflix for recognizing that, for just picking up some intelligent people, mind you like you said yeah there's not there is some shit on there too that you have to like sift through and sometimes you wonder why you're being filtered or they're telling you uh, they're, they're treating you as your own little demographic of like hmm, here's some research based on what you watch i think you're gonna enjoy um baking at home with julia circa circa 1999 it's like what, what was i watching that gave you that idea that i just sit at home watching cooking channel all the time i know right anyway um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shout out to Netflix and and uh, and Cole and John Mulaney, who did have another show that's also on Netflix. Oh, hello. I think. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. That's a great one. Or translated into Canadian as "Hi, eh? I know, eh? Yeah. But yeah, check that one out too. Hilarious. Great. Great. Just yeah. And, and Steve Martin is in that too. Yeah, they're they're guest in that. Um, Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert! It's got a it's got a plug and play section where they interview guests, and Steve Martin is in their special. It's just fucking it's it's, it's genius. It's gold. It's so if you need a good giggle, watch any of the things we just mentioned in our yeah, and particularly cool like things. Not to keep on plugging people who do not need it, but the Oh Hello show. Um, granted, they've been working on it for like ten years, but it's so well structured in a way that allows their type of comedy, like that zany. Um, uh, metaphysical in a sense sort of like uh, what's it called you know like kids in the hall um, like and Monty Python it's it's like slapstick not slapstick no. but abstract and um, absurd absurd comedy it's such they're so smart to weave in absurd comedy like they're able they're, they're, the structure of it allows for them to slip in their absurdity the kind of comedy that is difficult to really hit in a in a mass audience sense but mm -hmm. but they also they're very aware of like the politics that they're bringing into their show just just smart very like kids in the hall slips into the politics of our time mm -hmm. that they're very poignant about so i'm really glad that we just plugged all of those shows that really needed some love and support yeah uh and speaking of love and support here comes our plug for supporting our podcast and loving us if you like this podcast you can support it by subscribing to it on itunes soundcloud stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts you can also leave us a rating or review which sincerely helps us and we absolutely love come hang out with us on instagram facebook and twitter and send us your questions recommendations and cool things at we're totally not okay at gmail.com Thanks for listening to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay. Never